This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, which means to, in the privacy of your priesthood, in silent prayer, admit or acknowledge any known sins to God the Father. You're instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and prepared for worship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have this evening to gather together, to worship, to celebrate the fact that we have a risen Savior, a Savior who has provided victory over death, a Savior who has provided victory over every problem that we will ever face through his completed work on the cross. And Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us, that he might indwell us and fill us guiding us in your word, teaching us, bringing the things to remembrance that we need to apply doctrine. And, Father, we pray that we might be reminded that our priorities need to be your priorities, and your priority is your word. That, as Jesus said, it is your word that is truth, and it is your word that is the means of sanctification. And, Father, we pray that uh, you would guide and direct our thinking this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, today is Resurrection Sunday, a day which, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we annually remember His physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. Now, this is important. This isn't just some secondary uh, doctrine that somehow floats into the church, which is how some, in so-called nominal Christianity are beginning to look at, at the resurrection, but we'll get to that in a moment. I had a question the other night, which is a pertinent question. I think a lot of people have wondered it at a time or two, and that is, why is it that we seem to celebrate Resurrection Day at various times, different times in the spring? Last year it was at the end of April. This year it's at the end of March. Sometimes it's at the beginning of April and it floats. And it's the only floating holiday in the Christian calendar. And what's the basis for that? Well, it's really very complicated, but I'm going to try to boil it down and see if I can't get this right. It starts with the fact that you're in the first century you were dealing with two different calendars. You were dealing with the Jewish uh, calendar, which was a lunar calendar, that had 354.36 days in one year, 354.36 days in a year. So it's based on the lunar cycle. In the Roman world, you were, they were operating on the Julian calendar, which had 30, 365 and a quarter days in it. So you've got a difference there. And Christ died according to the Jewish calendar. So his death was on the... Uh, on Passover Day, which was the 14th of the first month of their uh, ceremonial or their civil calendar, which was the or their excuse me their ceremonial calendar, which was the 14th of Nisan, and this is the first spring month 
in their religious calendar, and it's determined by, of course, the, the, the lunar cycle. So on the 14th day of that month, so Christian, early Christians, in fact, in the, at the end of the first century and beginning of the second century, Christians in the Middle East, in Israel, Syria, and that area, celebrated not the resurrection, but they celebrated Passover as the day when the Lord was crucified. And those folks were called quarto decimons. See, that's a new word you can impress somebody with tomorrow. Quarto meaning fourth and deci from uh, ten. So that had to do with 14. So they celebrated the 14th of the month, the day of Passover. That pretty much ended by about 150, and the uh, church decided, and by that we just had one church. There were no denominations at that time. You didn't have Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. None of that had developed, but it became a standard practice through the church leaders agreed upon practice to celebrate the resurrection on a Sunday. And it would be the first Sunday after uh, the first full moon in, this, in the spring, after the uh, vernal equinox, which is March 21st. And that became solidified pretty much at the Council of Nicaea in 325. But you then had another problem, and that's, that's how we determined it in the West, but, but you had another problem in that by... The mid-13th century, Roger Bacon noted that there was a slight discrepancy. Easter started sliding towards summer because you had uh, the, the, the Julian calendar wasn't exactly correct. And we learned from astronomy that the true year was closer to 365.242 days, not 365.25 now, that only makes an 11-minute difference per year. But over a 1,000-year period, 11 minutes sort of accumulates, and days begin to slide. And it wasn't until Pope Gregory the 13th that they recognized that something had to be done. And it wasn't until 1583 that they agreed on it. And in 1583, they took 10 days out of the calendar. So you went to sleep on October the 5th, and you woke up on October the 14th. They just took those 10 days right out of the calendar. The, different, the reason that's important is because the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't make the shift in their ritual calendar. That is why the Eastern Orthodox branch does not celebrate Easter until about a month from now this year. So that's why it slips. It's determined by the first full moon after the vernal, vernal equinox. And so now you know... Why Easter is a moving holiday. And I got to, if, you, if you're really interested in this, you can get on the U.S. Naval Observatory site, and they give you all of the logarithms that they use to figure out which uh, date, day Easter will fall on each year, and that gets way beyond my level of expertise. Now, I spent the last couple of days taking a slight break from... Uh, the day-to-day -day rigors of study, and went over to Austin. But then I woke up this morning, this fine, beautiful, crisp morning, Resurrection Day, reminded me of those days, those Resurrection Days in Connecticut. Just so cold, nobody's going to wear Easter finery. It just doesn't look like spring. And I decided to have my morning coffee outside, reading the editorial in what Tommy Ice used to call, when he lived in Austin, the Austin Liberal American Statesman. And there were a number of very irate letters to the editor because there had been an editorial published earlier this week by a visiting classics professor at the University of Texas. Now, remember, University of Texas pays their, their visiting professors with your tax dollars. Just don't forget that. This man is paid with your tax dollars, and his name's James H. D., and Dr. D. wrote an editorial called, Some Christians Now Admit Jesus is Not Risen. And this, of course, raised the hackles, as it should, of a number of believers in the Austin area who responded pretty well to what he said. I thought it was great that a couple of people noted that uh, the Austin American state statesman wouldn't have the 
courage to publish an article questioning the legitimacy of Muhammad's visions during Ramadan. Neither would they want to question the validity of the Exodus during Passover. And when uh, all the school kids in Austin celebrate their powwow day every year, they wouldn't be questioning the uh, mental acuity of the uh, Native Americans who worship spirit gods and their ancestors. But they will publish an, a, a, a full-bore assault on Christianity three days before Easter which is just another example of how Christianity is under attack in our culture. But there were a couple of things I thought notable in what he wrote that I would just comment on. His first comment, which is usually one that people you'll hear people raise, is that there's a conflict between the gospel accounts on the resurrection. So maybe there's, there, there's nothing literal or historical about the resurrection. I mean, you, you take Mar- uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and compare them, and there are differences. But the differences are not contradictions. That's the way to answer that. The differences aren't contradictions. In one gospel, there's, uh, un- it states, an angel spoke to Mary. In another gospel, in the gospel of John, there are two angels there. But see, there's not a... The, the gospel writer who said an angel spoke to Mary wasn't saying there, were only, there was only one angel there. He is only talking about the uh, utterance of one angel that was there, so that's not a contradiction. Other, there's other apparent little contradictions there that the liberals always like to hone in on and make a big deal about. In fact, that's what the, the uh, Jesus Seminar did. Now, you all ought to be familiar with the Jesus Seminar because... They're, they're the folks that are usually interviewed. Whenever you have the Discovery Channel or History Channel or any of the A&E or any of those, go to anybody that's not, not a conservative. And trust me, they rarely, if ever, have I seen anybody close to being a conservative with regards to the Bible interviewed on any of those shows. And they really like to get the, 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 guy, the, the scholars out of the Jesus Seminar. This was made up of seven, 79 Catholic and Protestant scholars who worked for about 10 years dissecting the Gospels and trying to decide on a, on a sliding scale what Jesus said, what he might have said, what he probably didn't say, and what he didn't say. And this writer points out that these are the Christians that admit Jesus didn't rise, by the way, but they don't believe anything in the Bible. They concluded in their study that all those episodes in the, uh, in the gospel accounts are completely fictional. In fact, um, their conclusion was that, that the resurrection of Jesus did not include the resuscitation of a corpse. So they just reject the Bible out of hand. And that's really the bottom uh, line assumption is that they approach the Bible as just a collection of, of myths or stories written by people who are incredibly gullible. And this shows what little respect they have for people who lived in the ancient world. I mean, these are the, the ancient world gave us Aristotle and Plato. These people were not uh, gullible. They didn't just fall off the turnip truck yesterday. But that's the arrogance of uh, so much modern scholarship. Now, there was an answer, an editorial answer to this, written by a professor, president of a uh, conservative Episcopal seminary in Austin, and he did a fairly good job handling it, but he made one little mistake, and this was one thing I wanted to point out. You have to be careful that you don't give away the ship in the process of, of trying to answer someone's questions. And he said, we, we can agree that these accounts aren't historical. See, as soon as you go there, what he's trying to do is make this dichotomy between history and faith. But see, that's the methodology of all liberal scholarship, is you approach all your other data that you get from history or from archaeology is valid. But when it comes to the witness of the Bible to either creation or the flood of Noah or to the resurrection of Jesus Christ or any other miracle, you discount it because it's, quote, faith. So therefore, it's got a... It's got an agenda behind it. That's the assumption. Well, my question is, is this editorial, shouldn't it be dismissed because he has an agenda behind it? This is just absurd reasoning, but this is the kind of distorted reasoning that characterizes so much of, um, of liberal theology. But this is what you hear more and more coming out of various pulpits. One other thing I wanted to point out in, that in his, in his uh, article 
because it's, I had not really heard this before, and it focuses us on a really important aspect of understanding what happened on the cross. He writes that there is even a more, there's an even more serious problem independent of historical arguments. What is the moral sense of using physical torture and death of one person as expiation for offenses against divinity committed by millions? So he's raising the question, what he's basically saying is, is what, what kind of a God would, would take the physical suffering and death of an individual as a means of, of, to, to expiate a moral problem in substitution for others? He's saying that's absurd. Number one, when you look at that, where is he getting his values? He's making, a, he's making a value judgment. He's saying that that's something that is a, really an immoral concept. So in his statement, he's appealing to some kind of morality. Well, where is he getting his morality? That's the question I want to point out. Where, where is he getting his morality that he can judge that? The second thing I want to point out is that he's really dealing with a Roman Catholic view of atonement. Because in his next paragraph, he deals with Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. And he says, leading up to that, he says, It seems obvious that Jesus' comparatively mild and brief suffering cannot be enough to compensate for the sins of countless believers, especially since Christian doctrine has long asserted that only extreme eternal torment will suffice if individual sinners choose to be resolutely ethical and in the vogue phrase, accept personal responsibility for, for their actions. So there's two doctrinal flaws that, that are there. Number one is he's buying into a Roman Catholic view of the atonement, which puts the focus on physical suffering. That's why Mel Gibson's film didn't really end with the resurrection. The focus was on the physical suffering of Christ, because in Roman Catholic theology, it is physical death that's the penalty for sin, not separation from God. So when, as a Protestant, when we look at the cross, it's not the physical suffering of Jesus that is redemptive. But for Roman Catholic theology, the physical suffering of Christ is redemptive. So he's questioning how can the physical suffering of one human being be, be valid as a substitute for the, for, for the whole human race. The second idea that's really subtle but is embedded here is the idea that fallen man goes to the lake of fire for their sins. That's the subtle subtext here, is that the reason they're sent to the lake of fire is for their sins. And the scripture makes it clear that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sin on the cross. It was a spiritual substitutionary death. The means by which it is accomplished is determined by the absolute righteousness of God, which can't be judged by some human as saying, well, that doesn't fit my idea of what morality is. See, that's his ultimate standard, is his own concept of morality. So God has determined that there needs to be a substitute of infinite value. That's why it can't be his physical suffering, because the value of his expiation of his atonement has to be infinite. It has to be able to take care of the sins of the entire human race. And that's what happens on the cross, so that all sin, all sin is paid for on the cross, not, and, and it's actual. So that at the cross, Jesus, Jesus Christ pays the penalty for all sin. But that doesn't completely solve the problem. Because, as we've studied in, in salvation before, you have several problems that separate God from man. And the scripture says that all are reconciled, all are propitiate. Jesus Christ is a propitiation for all, and he pays the price for all. These three doctrines satisfy the all provision. But that handles sin in its objective reality. It doesn't handle sin in terms of its personal reality. Because in its personal reality, each one of us is still minus R. We lack righteousness. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We still have, uh, are under temporal death. We don't have eternal life. 
and we are spiritually dead. And these are only resolved when you put your faith alone in Christ alone. When at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you trust in him, the minus R is replaced by the plus R of Jesus Christ in imputed righteousness, and that's the declaration of justification. Our being under physical death or temporal death is replaced by eternal life. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to us his eternal life. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, the issue of spiritual death is resolved because of the Christ has paid the penalty for us and we are regenerate. So this resolves a number of problems. This resolves the problem of historically the battle between limited atonement and unlimited atonement. Because you see, if you say that Christ only died provisionally or hypothetically for all, but if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, then when you're sent to hell, you pay the penalty for your sins. You're going to stand there. Let me see if I can portray this. You're sent to hell. You are now in the lake of fire, and you're having a conversation with the person next to you. And the person next to you says, why are you here? And you say, well, I'm here because I didn't trust Christ as my Savior, so I'm paying the penalty for my sins. This would imply an eternal penalty. And that's the point that this writer's getting at here, is how could this three-hour suffering of Jesus Christ be equated to this eternal penalty if what they're doing is paying for their sins? But you see, they're not paying for their sins. Christ paid for their sins. And if this, this, believe, this unbeliever who's in the lake of fire says, I'm here because Christ didn't, I, didn't, I didn't trust in him, so, so uh, he didn't pay the penalty for my sins, that is a backdoor limited atonement. Because see, what he has said is Christ didn't pay for my sins. I'm now paying for them. If I had trusted him, he, it would have been paid for. So that is a backdoor version of limited atonement. The only way to solve this problem is to deal literally with the passages of Scripture which teach that Jesus Christ paid the sin for all. So why are they sent to the lake of fire? They're sent to the lake of fire not because the sins aren't paid for, because they are. That's redemption. The sins are paid for. The Father's propitiated. Reconciliation has been done for all. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They're sent to the lake of fire because they're still minus R. They don't have perfect righteousness. They have, they're under temporal debt. They don't have eternal life, so they can't go to heaven. And they're still spiritually dead. That's why they're sent to the lake of fire. As John states it in, in John 3.18, they are condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're not condemned because of their sin. They're condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Anyway, I just thought I would point out those things. You have to learn to read critically and read perceptively as you go through the Scriptures. Now let's turn in our Bibles to our passage this evening, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Last week we looked at verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is the final commendation, the final word of praise to the Ephesian church. And we studied that and we saw that we really don't know for sure who the Nicolaitans were. There's a couple of different views in church history. The early church thought that they were the followers of Nicolaus of Antioch, who was one of the uh, early deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6, the seven who were chosen to help the apostles in the distribution of money to the widows in Jerusalem. That's really based on a supposition. There's no biblical or historical foundation for that. The second thing that we noted was by the 17th century or 18th century, the view was that the, uh, that the term Nicolaitan was a Greek word that was another term for the followers of Balaam, as they're mentioned along with the Nicolaitans in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, in the letter to the, to the uh, church at 
at Pergamum. But that was an awfully late view, and it's not based on any solid data. It's really somewhat subjective. But what we do know about the Nicolaitans was that they were licentious in their approach to the Christian life. They treated grace as a license to sin, not a liberty to recover. And so they, they got involved with all kinds of different sins, sexual immorality, and other activities that were generally uh, prohibited, prescribed in, in Scripture. They just looked at 1 John 1, 9 as if it was a license to sin. And so the church at Ephesus was commended because they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the point that I made last time was that Jesus Christ is showing that doctrine really matters and that we live in an era when people want to get away from doctrine and they want to just emphasize what we have in unity and let's not get too detailed in our exegesis. Let's get, not get too precise in our theology. Let's not try to decide what the Scripture really says, but let's just enjoy our fellowship together. And let's not get into too much doctrine because doctrine divides. And that is a popular view today. But the Scriptures teach that doctrine is important. The Word of God teaches us how to think. And the most important thing that we can do in our life is learn how to think biblically. That takes precedence over everything else in our life. It takes precedence over our careers. It takes precedence over where we live. We need to be making decisions on where we live as to who's going to feed us the Word of God the best. It takes precedence over everything else. Because if Jesus is going to, going to pray to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth, thy word is truth, the only means of sanctification is to know the Word of God. And the only way to know the Word of God is to be in Bible class on a regular basis where you can concentrate and focus and study. Now, a lot of times, all you can do is listen to a tape. But what, what I hear, I do the same thing when I'm listening to tapes. Usually I'm doing something else. I'm driving down the road. I have to back it up and listen to it three or four times. And, and that's very distracting. You don't really get it. You don't really focus. You don't really pay attention. It's important to be in in Bible class with a body of believers. This is the view of the early church. The apostles never had an understanding of someone being a Christian and sitting off somewhere totally isolated from other members of the body of Christ trying to get fed on their own by just reading what the apostles had written. Their idea was that you need to be in a body of believers sitting under the teaching of a pastor teacher. This is the priority. When it's all said and done, we don't get to take anything with us but the doctrine that's in our soul. It doesn't matter how many degrees you accumulate. It doesn't matter how successful you were in business. It doesn't matter how much real estate you purchased or how much money you accumulated, how much success you had. The only thing that we're going to take with us is the doctrine that's in our soul and that level of spiritual maturity. And it's that level of spiritual maturity that becomes the basis for determining who and what we are in eternity and in the millennial kingdom. And the point is that we need to start learning to look at life today as if we're in boot camp. Those of you who are in the military, you go through boot camp, and at the end of boot camp, somebody gets designated the honor graduate of boot camp. Or if you went through ranger school, you always had your honor graduate of ranger school. Well, that's what we're all in. We are in boot camp. Boot camp is training for our role and responsibility to reign as priests and kings in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. And the honor graduates are those who are going to receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And those honor graduates are given a special designation in this passage. And that is in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we get the first of seven statements directed to those who are designated as overcomers. These are the successful ones. That's another way to translate it. These are those who succeed in the Christian life versus those who fail. I thought about a title for this this message calling it uh, Overcomers, Underachievers, or Failures because that's where most believers are going to be. They're going to be either overcomers, successful in the Christian life. They're going to be underachievers. They show up with a few rewards, not too many. 
but it does show that they had a little persistence. And those who are just flat losers. To get some background for this, we have to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 11. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul develops a metaphor of building, of construction, building a house, building a building, any sort of edifice can uh, be used to, to understand this analogy. And he starts with a foundation. Now, this is very important to understand this within the context of what he's been talking about. He has already laid into the Corinthians because many of them are carnal. In the first three verses, he, are, actually, he separates them into two groups. He says, I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual, that is, those who are filled with the Spirit and moving forward in the Christian life, but as to carnal, fleshly, that is, those who are operating on the sin nature. And then he adds a term as to babes of Christ. Now, you get confused in the English because it looks like he's equating carnality with being spiritually immature. But that's not the word he's using here. He is not using a word here, brephos, which would be the normal word for a baby. In the Greek, he is using the word napios. And the Greek word napios was used in slang terminology to indicate someone who was older but was acting like a baby. This is a pejorative term. In, spell it N-E-P-I-O-S. Napios. This is a long, long eta in, in the Greek. Napios. And so what he's doing is he's basically saying, you're, just, you're carnal. You're just babies. You're just whiny babies. He's not calling them immature believers, as we'll see later when, when we get to 1 John, where 1 John designates three different levels of, of Christians. This is not a, a complimentary term. He is really laying into them, and he's just calling them a bunch of whiny, arrogant, self-centered babies. This is clear because in verse 3 he comes back and he says, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? See, those are the same types of things that Paul outlines in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and following in terms of the works of the, of the flesh. He says, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? What he's saying there is you're trying to live the Christian life simply in your humanity, out of your own resources as a human being. And that's always going to end up producing the works of the flesh because unless you're walking by the Spirit, all you can produce is the works of the flesh. Having established that there are two different categories of believers, there's those who are carnal and those who are spiritual, those who are walking by the flesh, those who are walking by the Spirit, he then goes on to say that if you continue long-term in either one of these positions, there will be, those distinctions will be made available when you come to the judgment seat of Christ. He says in verse 11 that there is a foundation. That foundation is faith alone in Christ alone. Quote, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, see, once you're saved at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you lay a foundation in your life, which is your new position in Jesus Christ. But from that point on, the issue is up to your volition as to how you're going to live your life and the production of your life. And with all the things that we do in life, our work, our play, our recreation, everything that we do is either going to be done in the power of the sin nature or it's going to be done in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. You can pray, you can evangelize, you can give, you can stand in the pulpit and teach the Word of God. You can do all kinds of things in the flesh. It's amazing the, the, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it, the prophet said. So we can do all manner of things. You can't, a lot of times we can't tell. Was that in the, in the flesh or was I walking by the Spirit? 
The issue is that we have to make sure that we keep short accounts with confession to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit and that we recover from our sin when we do sin. But as we go through life, we get involved in all the various activities of life. We are building an edifice. We are constructing our life. Now, at the end of our life, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make evident what was from the Spirit, what had eternal value. See, when we're building it, we're not even always sure what's wood, hay, and straw, and what's gold, silver, and precious stones. So there has to be an evaluation mechanism. And Paul says that uh, we build on this foundation with all these various construction tools. And on verse 13, in verse 13 it says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. That's the day of judgment in terms of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ because it will be revealed by fire. Now, this isn't hellfire. You know, somebody, every time somebody, somebody sees fire, they want to think it's a lake of fire, and every time they see baptism, they want to think it's water. But we have to dig into the text a little bit and discover that, that the writers of Scripture aren't that simplistic and they are not that rigid. It's using a metaphor. It's still describing this idea, you've built a house. Now let's see what it's made of. So we're going to set fire to it. And that fire will burn up that which has only temporal value, the wood, hay, and straw. All the human good that you produced in your life is just going to be destroyed. Notice, in the imagery here, it's not revealed. Nobody's making an issue out of all your human good. Nobody's making an issue out of all your sin. That's, that's destroyed by the fire. What is revealed is what survives the fire. What's revealed is the gold, silver, and precious stone. And perhaps in some believers' lives, the gold, silver, and precious stone may be completely covered up with a lot of wood, hay, and straw, and you don't see it at first. And then after you're burning away all the dross, then you see that which has eternal value. Verse 14, Paul says, If anyone's work, that is the production of your Christian life, remember, work's a key word over in, in Revelation 2, 2 and 3. Each one of these churches are evaluated by their work. That's their production. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That's where you become a loser at the Bema seat. And the meaning, the, the, the concept of being a loser is you lose something. You lose rewards. It's not you as a person or a loser, but you are functionally someone who will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ because you've been a failure in the Christian life. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. See, it's not a loss of salvation. Salvation is not based on works. But rewards and responsibility in the millennial kingdom are based on production, not Christian service, but whether or not you've been walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, producing the character of Christ, which, if you are, will ultimately work its way out in terms of various areas of Christian service. So verse 15 points out that, it, that a person, that there'll be those who lose, but they'll be saved. They lose everything, but they enter into heaven, yet as through fire. I often... Uh, Draw the analogy of someone who's been out outside in the backyard cooking over the grill. If, you, if you're from Texas and you like to smoke brisket or ribs out on the grill, then when you come in the house, everybody else knows it because you just smell like that oak or mesquite or, or hickory or whatever it is that you've been using outside smoking. And you come inside and everybody knows it. Well, that's what's going to happen with a lot of believers. They're going to enter into heaven, but when they walk into heaven, everybody's going to go, I smell something. <laughs> See, everything's burned up. So there's two categories of believers here. There's those who have rewards based on the divine good produced in their life, the gold, silver, and precious stones, and those that don't have reward. So it's very clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that not only do you have two classifications of believers on earth, those who are carnal and those who are spiritual, but if you spend maximum amount of time in carnality, then when you hit the judgment seat of Christ, then all of your human good is going to burn up. But if you spend t maximum time in 
walking by the Spirit, then you're going to produce divine good, and that will ha- that will not burn up, and that will survive. It will uh, survive the evaluation test. Now let's go back to our passage in Revelation chapter chapter two, verse seven. The passage states, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now there are basically two views that you find on this concept of an overcomer. One is that the view that every believer is an overcomer. The second view is that only believers who advance in the Christian life are overcomers, and obviously that's the view that I take. Now the word translated overcomes is a Greek participle based on the verb nikao. It's a present active participle with an article, which means it functions as a substantive. It's like a noun. This is simply a name for the person they're called, the one who overcomes, or the overcomer, or the victorious one, or the successful believer. Any of those terms could fit. The word, the verb nikao is related to uh, two Greek nouns. The feminine noun is Nike, which is the name of the Greek goddess of victory, which is where we get the name for the athletic equipment. And the masculine noun, Nikos, which emphasizes the prize of the, of the victory, which in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 57 talks about, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It focuses on the ultimate victorious reception of that prize of, of a resurrection body when, we're, uh, when the rapture occurs. So there's a promise made to the one who overcomes. Now, the question needs to be asked, what do they overcome? What do they overcome? Overcomers of what? And in order to understand this, we have to do some work on this word, overcomer. It is a word that is used five or six times, uh, excuse me, about nine times in Revelation, about four or five times other than the ones in these seven letters to the seven churches, not all of which have theological significance. But the word is used a number of times in 1 John, and that's really where we run into the problem. That's really where we run into the problem, is trying to understand what we're overcoming. Now, before we get into this, I want to look at one other, one other slide just to remind us of something. And this has to do with the three stages of salvation. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. We're all familiar with this. At phase one, we're, we're justified. Phase two is the spiritual life. Phase three is glorification. The Bible uses the word saved to refer to all three of these stages, and that confuses a lot of people. In fact, in some epistles, such as Romans and Hebrews, I doubt that the word saved, sozo, ever refers to phase one. It is talking about phase two, which is what Paul referred to in Philippians 2 as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is salvation from the presence of sin. Now, at phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's eternal condemnation, having to go to the lake of fire. Or, excuse me, I misstated that. We're freed from the penalty of sin. And by penalty of sin, I mean spiritual death. Spiritual death is the penalty for sin. Go back to Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17, the instant you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. That was the judicial penalty, was spiritual death. Because there is no reception of eternal life, there's no regeneration, there's no imputation of righteousness, that will mean that the person who doesn't believe in Christ goes to the lake of fire. But the penalty that's being, that we're freed from at salvation is a, is a uh, we're being saved from spiritual death. In phase two, we're saved from the power of sin. We are saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature, and we're learning, as Paul says, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. 
And the whole argument in Romans 6 flows out of the resurrection of Christ because at the instant of salvation, Paul argues, we're identified with Christ in, our, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And just as he rose to new, newness of life, so we have a new life post-salvation. And we have to learn to live as those who are identified with Christ and not as those who are spiritually dead. And then, of course, phase three is we're saved from the presence of sin. Now, when we talk about this concept of overcoming or having victory over something in phase two, we're having victory over the sin nature, and specifically in the epistle to John, you're overcoming the world system. Now, we have to understand this in light of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. In Romans 12, 2, we're told, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, or literally the renovation of your thinking. That means doctrine. You can't do it twice a week. You can't do it three times a week. Heck, you, can't, you can barely do it seven days a week. Any believer who thinks that they can renovate their thinking by listening to or coming to church once a week or twice a week is fooling themselves. The cosmic system is so ever-present and it is so overpowering and it has such receptivity with our sin nature that we have to constantly, constantly have our minds refreshed and renewed by listening to the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God. The more I study, the more I'm into the Word, the more I realize how, how, how deep it is and how, how, how very few people ever go beneath the surface. They just don't have any kind of vision for it. We not only have to learn to think the right things, we have to learn to think the right way. And that, that means we have to completely overhaul everything that we learned before we were saved. And for, probably for some of us who were saved at a young age, we, we learned a lot of things that we shouldn't have, and we have to overhaul that. It is a way of life. You're never going to make it in the Christian life until you realize that doctrine is your life. Doctrine is your life. It's not an option. It's not something, well, I'll show up once a week. I'll show up this week. I got busy last week. I couldn't make it. You have to make doctrine your life, and that's the only way you're going to truly make it as an overcomer, as a successful believer. In Romans, Paul says that we're not to be conformed to this world. It's the Greek word, sus. Uh, Suskematizo, which has the idea of being pressed into a mold. And see, cosmic thinking or worldly thinking is a mold of thinking, the thinking of the culture around us that is based on human viewpoint. And we're constantly being pressured to conform to that system. Now, the word that is translated world here isn't the word cosmos. It's the word ionos, which has to do with the age. The, another word would be the spirit of the age. The, the Germans have the word zeitgeist. And, and we are uh, not to be conformed or pressed to, into the mold of thinking like the world thinks. That means we have to deal with issues that constantly invade our thought based on uh, naturalistic theories of origins, creation versus evolution. Frankly, if you don't have God as a creator God with a literal six-day creation, you destroy the cross. We've gone over this again and again and again. If you have a lengthy period of time before Adam shows up, then you've got something dying before Adam sins. And if you have anything that dies before Adam sins, then you've destroyed the necessity for the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin in terms of spiritual death, but the resurrection shows he conquers physical death, which is a consequence of sin. There was no physical death before Adam sinned. And therefore, uh, it's a evolution is in any form of it, theistic evolution, progressive evolution, fr framework uh, thesis, uh, progressive evolution, all these compromised views. If you have anything die before Adam sins, you compromise the necessity for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's cosmic thinking. Then you have, today we have all this pressure from sociology in the world that, that you need to do certain things to be a successful church. And everything you read on the church 
today. It comes out of these sociological models that, that, golly, the Apostle Paul knew nothing about. He just knew about relying on the Holy Spirit. Then you have psychology and the compromise with, with secular psychology that somehow through empirical studies you can understand the nature of man without ever paying attention to what the Scripture says about the complexities of the sin nature and how it operates on the human soul. So at all of these levels, all of us here who are products of, of 20th century American education and American media and films and television shows. We've all been influenced like that. It's embedded in our terminology. It's embedded in how we analyze different things. Just, just catch yourself sometimes. How many times do you hear yourself saying, asking somebody, well, how'd you feel about that? See, I don't care how you feel about it. It's how you think about it. See, we just get sucked into the way the world, the world thinks by emphasizing feelings. So we have to overhaul the spirit of the age. We can't be conformed to it. And the solution is to be transformed, metamorpho, which means to be totally transformed uh, or to completely exchange one thing for something else. So we have to exchange the human viewpoint in our soul for divine viewpoint. This is the point that John is making in 1 John 5, verse 4. He says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Now, at first blush, when you look at this, just isolate this verse out of context in 1 John, it looks like he is saying that whoever is regenerate overcomes the world. And that's how a lot of people take that. See, what that means is that in John's thinking, overcoming is related to just being regenerate. If you're regenerate, you overcome. If you're not regenerate, you don't. But that's not what John is saying, and I can demonstrate this from John's terminology in the epistle. The term born of God, as it's used here, is a perfect, uh, perfect passive participle of ganao. Uh, ganao is spelled G-E-N-N-A-O. I don't want to take a lot of time to, uh, to focus on the Greek here because it's more based on just the argument of what John says. And it's a, it's a participle that should be translated as a noun. It's, it's the, the regenerate one. It's the believer. But for John, it's more than simply being a believer. But for right now, we'll just, we'll just isolate it to that concept. It's, it's a believer. And I'm going to shift gears here and go back to the overhead. I've got an idea. Here's a circle. And in this circle we have all the regenerate ones, all the, those who are gonao, those who have been regenerate, okay? What we're going to see is that overcomers, the ones who are nikao, are a subcategory. See, you have to be regenerate to be an overcomer, but not all overcomers are regenerate. That's the way to understand this. I'm going to make this clear in a minute. So overcomers are a subset of those who were regenerate. That's the same thing we're going to see in John. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, but not everyone who is born of God will overcome the world. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, but he is stating regeneration as a precondition to being an overcomer. You see, we have to go this way because... On this on, put me on the handheld. Okay, flexibility. Demons live in technology. I'm convinced of it, especially in my ministry. Okay, let's look at this. First John 2:29. John says, "If you if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him." So what happens is some people come along and they look at this and they want to draw a connection and say, look, you're born of him, you're regenerate, you practice righteousness. 1 John 3.9, our next verse. John says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, wait a minute. If you're regenerate, you don't sin? For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, that verse makes it clear that when John uses the term born of God, he is not 
simply talking about someone regenerate. Now, I'm not going to go through all the exegesis I did when I went through 1 John, but the conclusion is that John is talking about someone who is living out the basis of his regeneration. When you're living as a regenerate believer, you don't sin. It's the same thing Paul says in Galatians 5.16. Those who walk by means of the Spirit cannot. In other words, it's impossible for them to fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, you can't sin. That's what John says in Galatians 5.16. If you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. What do you have to do? You have to exercise negative volition and quit walking by the Spirit. Then you'll end up sinning. John's saying the same thing. It's not that difficult a concept to understand. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, you can either draw one of two conclusions. First conclusion is that genuine born-again believers practice righteousness and do not sin, and they love God. Or, let me say that again, the first option is to say, okay, if you're regenerate, you're going to practice righteousness, you're not going to sin, and you're going to love one another and love God all the time. That's one option. The other option is to understand all these verses to say that only someone who is born again can practice righteousness, not sin, love their brothers, love God, but that not all who are born again practice righteousness, avoid sin, and love their brothers. In other words, if you take it at first blush, then you're going to have to say that The people who are born again don't ever sin. They all love God. They all love one another, and they all practice righteousness. And that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit anybody's argument. The only way to understand is John is saying you have to be born again, and only born again ones, the outer circle here, can then fulfill what's going on in the subset, which is those believers who are overcomers, who are not not practicing or not sinning, practicing righteousness, loving one another, and loving God. Those are the only two options. Furthermore, another important observation to make in John when it talks about loving God is to go to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Right, first we'll deal with the world. In 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. See, if every believer automatically had victory over the world, then why is John telling believers don't love the world. See, if you as a believer are automatically going to have victory over the world, why is it necessary to tell you not to love the world? But because John is addressing the believers and saying don't love the world, obviously believers can love the world and not have victory over the world. So either John is completely inconsistent with his own writing or it doesn't mean that, that 1 John 5, 4 doesn't mean what it appears to mean simply at first glance. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, and this is a, 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 an objective genitive, the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, in the 15th verse, it emphasized the fact that you're either loving the world or you're loving the Father. Let's go to 1 John 2, 3 to understand this. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love for God has truly been perfected. And that word means matured. By this we know that we are in him. Okay, let's look at that. Got to just understand the thought flow here. John is saying, this is a way we can know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, we do what he said to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The one who claims, I've come to know him, and doesn't keep his commandments, that is, his disobedience, is a liar. And the truth, that is, doctrine isn't in him. He's not applying doctrine. Verse 5, 
But whoever keeps his word, in him the love for God has truly been matured. Now, the problem that we have in this verse, again, is people who use sloppy verbiage in talking about Christianity today. Verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him. And in sloppy evangelical witnessing, people say, instead of saying, Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? They say, Do you know Jesus? And what they're asking is, Are you saved? But the Bible doesn't use that terminology. The Bible uses knowing Jesus in a different way. The Bible doesn't say, do you, do you know Jesus is the same as being saved? Because if you use that terminology, you're going to misinterpret verse 3. Verse 3 says, this is how we know that we've come to know him. Not this is how we know that we're saved. This is how we know that we've come to know him. And the reason we know this is that in, in John 14, verse 9, in John 14, verse 9, Jesus uses, uses this same tense and voice, perfect tense of the word, uh, get am I to know. And he's talking to Philip, and he says, and Philip is saved at this point. Jesus has already said in chapter 13 that all of the disciples are cleansed. And now he looks at, Peter and he, at Philip and he says, have you, known, have you been with me so long and you don't know me? In other words, Philip, you've been with me a long time. You're a believer, and you don't know me. It's possible to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who, who had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that's the term, that's the term evangelicals love to use. You want to get saved, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus. He's in hell. He's, in, he's going to go to the lake of fire. He's in Hades right now, so it didn't help Judas any. But what we have here is the same terminology. That Jesus used with Philip. In other words, you can, you can believe in Jesus, you can be saved, but you don't know Jesus. Therefore, a believer must come to know God as part of spiritual growth. As you come to know God, you will keep his commandments and you will have love for God. What am I saying? Love for God equals not loving the world. Love, coming to have love for God is a result of learning the mandates of Scripture and advancing in your spiritual life. Therefore, you start off as a believer, then you learn the Word, and as you apply the Word and you come to know God, you demonstrate your love for Him. This is part of a spiritual advance, and it's not until you finally apply it consistently that you've learned to overcome the cosmic system. And so we're back in First uh, John chapter 5, verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world as he goes through the process of spiritual growth. And when he reaches certain levels of maturity, then he is said to overcome the world as he's gone past spiritual adolescence. That's clear from First John chapter 2. It's the young men who have overcome the world. You have three categories of believers in First John 2. Young, the babes, young men, and old men. And they diff, they're different stages of, of maturity. And it's the young men who have overcome the evil one. So 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's doctrine in the soul. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not ju- it's not just that believing it, but in the context of John, it is taking the implications of, of that belief and working them out in your day-to-day Christian life. Doctrine matters. A statement like Jesus is the Son of God is a core doctrinal statement that Jesus is fully God. Many people today, no, let's not get all caught up in this doctrine. Let's just let's just figure out how to solve our marriage problems. Well, you're not going to solve your marriage problems unless they're based on a solid foundation of doctrine because you have to learn to think biblically so you can act biblically. It's called re-education. Get rid of the, co- the cosmic thinking in your soul. So the issue then in 1 John, or in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, is that you have a special category of believers. Those who are positive will respond to this. Verse, verse 7 says, he who has an ear, let him hear. That means if you're positive to doctrine, you'll respond to this. You won't be like the forgetful hearer in James 1, but you will be an effectual applier of the word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Holy Spirit talking to you. 
To him who overcomes, that is, the believer who is advancing in spiritual maturity, I will give special privileges. The first is listed here in verse 7. He will have the privilege of eating from the tree of life. This is not talking about eternal life. See, Adam in the garden would have had eternal life without sin. But he still had the tree of life to eat from because it was a source of a capacity for life. So there's a special capacity for life that overcomer believers will enjoy in heaven and a special privilege they have in the to enter into a special garden or restricted area in heaven called the paradise of God. The term paradise came out of a Persian background, and it was a word for a garden, a restricted garden that the uh, kings had where only certain privileged, uh, favored aristocracy could come into that area. And that's the imagery here, that there is a special area in heaven that is reserved for uh, those believers who have advanced, those believers who have gold, silver, and precious stones, those believers who have uh, earned a privilege of a closer, more intimate fellowship with God in eternity. This is a serious warning. That's why you get this in every one of these letters is the, the question, the, the issue. To those who hear, let them hear. Are you positive? Are you willing to respond to this? Because this is boot camp. And how you handle boot camp is going to determine whether or not you are an honor graduate and have those special privileges when you enter into the millennial kingdom. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by the things that we study. Father, we especially pray for anyone here this evening who may not be saved, may be unsure or uncertain of their eternal life. This is their opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. By faith alone in Christ alone, you can have eternal salvation. All you need do is believe that he died for you. Right here, right now, right where you sit, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.